Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a Democratic candidate vying for a state Senate seat long held by Republicans, a preview of Brick's Be Heard Town Hall on Me Too, and then Cooking with Granny. Hi, I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. She'll be back on Thursday. We have a down day tomorrow as the building prepares for our latest Brick Be Heard Town Hall. Me Too is just the beginning. Later in the show, editorial director of Brick TV, Megan Donis, will give us a preview. We'll also talk to a producer of a web series that explores the stories behind our grandmother's secret recipes. And Jarrett Murphy is back with his bi-weekly local politics segment. He'll be talking to a candidate for an important state Senate seat Democrats hope to flip in November. But first, these things. Speaking of elections, can we talk for a second about the lawsuit which just wrapped up in Kansas against their voter ID law, which requires residents to present proof of citizenship in order to vote? The law is a solution to a non-existent problem, voter fraud, the same fraud that deprived Donald Trump of the popular vote. Remember that? Yeah, right. This push for voter ID laws has been around for more than a dozen years, concocted by US senators, Republicans, during some closed door meetings as a mean to suppress democratic turnout. If anyone lacks proof of citizenship, it's more likely to be Democratic-leaning voters like the elderly, physically disabled, or low-income who may have a tougher time economically or physically acquiring it. This pursuit aligns nicely with the Trump ethos, right? Since it allows him to vilify immigrants, which he loves, and stoke fears of an already anxious and diminishing white majority, that brown and black people are conspiring to steal the vote and further undermine their interests. So now in Kansas, Trump's voter fraud czar, Chris Kobach, also Kansas Secretary of State, had to defend his restrictive law, but he couldn't, partly because his expert witness couldn't point to a single election where non-citizens changed the outcome. The expert was also exposed for having published op-eds, as Kobach did too, based on an untruth that Somali nationals voting illegally had tipped an election in Missouri. In the tiny number of cases where non-citizens have registered or attempted to register to vote, Plaintiffs showed that in most, it was due to administrative confusion or error. By the way, Kobach wants to change the National Voter Registration Act to make it so that all states require proof of citizenship in order to vote. So keep an eye on this Kansas case. The judge said she'll decide it in about a month. It won't help with the divisions roiling the country right now, but it might resonate and it might ensure the election of more individuals who don't believe in scapegoating minorities or immigrants for political gain. The saga continues for Brooklyn friends of NRA who are trying to find a friendly home for their NRA fundraiser and give away some of their God-given guns by God. They thought they had a venue on Monday only for Grand Prospect Hall to be the latest to back out after another community protest. Guess it appears there are more Brooklyn friends of sanity or Brooklyn friends of keep your dirty and bloodstained political money out of my borough. The City Department of Housing, Preservation, and Development recently released an interactive map that shows buildings with affordable units and the number of units that exist. But when you talk about affordable housing, it always comes down to the question of affordable for whom? The answer, according to Curbed, who looked at these units and this map, was not the locals who live in the neighborhoods where the housing is going up. Affordable housing is calculated by Average Media Income, or AMI. But the formula doesn't just include incomes in the neighborhoods where a ton of development is happening, or even the city as a whole, but get this, it also includes parts of Westchester. So according to the report, if the AMI in, say, Bed-Stuy or Crown Heights is significantly lower than that average, that means about 24 to 30% of affordable units are unaffordable for the locals. The year was 2004, and it was a big deal. Miranda was moving to the cultural backwater Brooklyn, no, it can't be, said her friends, who refused to even visit. 
A local paper tried to assuage their fears. There's culture there, really, don't worry. Actors John Turturro, Steve Buscemi live there, so does Buster Rhymes. And back then it was a good place to get a martini for less than 15 bucks. Well, thanks Miranda. The crazy ass cocktail prices followed you here, as did all those other Upper East Siders. But now Miranda might be making another move. To Albany as governor? Good luck. We hope you'll enjoy it up there. Their martini's gotta be less than 15 bucks. Stay tuned for Jarrett Murphy and our first guest. The race for governor got exponentially more interesting this week with the news that actress and advocate Cynthia Nixon would challenge Andrew Cuomo for the Democratic nomination for governor. But while that contest will steal the spotlight for months, an election battle of perhaps more practical import has been underway right here in Brooklyn. As Democrats try to once again win control of the state Senate, long a conservative influence on policy in Albany, the only Republican senator from Brooklyn, Martin Golden, will certainly face a Democratic challenger in November. The only question is, who will it be? Two Democrats are vying for the chance to take Golden on, and one of them joins us today, Andrew Gennardis. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first, just to kind of get this out of the way, it's been in the buzz for a few weeks, the question of whether you are pursuing this office or the office that is currently held by a woman and indicted uh, Pamela Harris. I mean, I've been very clear from the day that I announced this campaign that I am focused entirely on running for the state Senate. I think the path to progress in New York State is blocked by the state Senate, uh, including Marty Golden, who's the incumbent state senator there, for 16-plus years. And that's where my focus is, and that's the race that I'm here to run and win. And right now you are uh, a staffer for uh, Borough President Eric Adams. Tell us what brings you to this point. You know, I think that over a, a, a career spent in public service, I, I've been really focused on issues that I think matter to people in my neighborhood. I'm a born and raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I see what's happened in my community uh, over the years as it relates to education and public transportation and health care and things like that. Uh, I've had a chance to work on some of those issues through the borough president's office. But again, like I just said a few minutes ago, the solution to a lot of these issues and these problems comes from Albany. And the only way we're going to fix these problems is to fix what's happening up in Albany. And that's why I've decided to run for the state senate this year. You are listening as a general counsel and senior policy advisor to the borough president. What are some of the policies you've advised him on? Sure. So, I mean, we've done a lot of work at the borough president's office over the last five years as it relates to education, specifically STEM education and STEAM education. The borough president has uh, allocated uh, unprecedented amounts of money through his capital budget into Brooklyn schools to increase STEM and STEAM opportunities. We've done a lot of work around health care uh, and healthy living and healthy eating. I'm sure you're aware of the borough president's um, lifestyle transformation that he's been very public about as it relates to his diabetes diagnosis and now he's on this new uh, plant-based diet. We've done a lot of work in our office to talk about the positive benefits of a plant-based lifestyle and the importance of treating yourself and taking care of yourself through healthy eating and healthy living. We've done a lot of work as well on mass transit issues. I mean, I can go on and on, but our office is very robust when it comes to addressing issues that affect Brooklynites, and I've been blessed to be a part of that along the borough president's side. I should mention in the way of equal time, we'll of course invite Senator Golden to be on the show, and we also will extend an invitation to the person who is right now your Democratic opponent, Ross Barkin, what do you think about having a fellow Democrat in the race? Does that confuse the picture for voters? You know, I don't think so. You know, I think it's great that we that there is a choice that voters have. You know, for the longest time, Marty Golden has been unopposed uh, either as a Republican primary or in a general election. I think it's great for democracy when you have multiple people who say that they want to put forth their positive vision for their neighborhood. Uh, and I think it's great for the first time in 16 years, uh, more, more than one person wants to to run against Marty Golden and say, "I can do better." So I think and it's it, really welcome. It is the case against Marty Golden. He's done or not done XYZ, or is it about Republicans, the state Senate, general uh, um, gridlock in Albany? 
you know, uh, all politics is local. And I think people are aware of what's happening up in Albany and how the politics and, and uh, dysfunction of Albany really relates in their daily lives. But they also want to see that what's happening on their block, what's happening in their kid's school, what's happening on their subway or bus, uh, that those things are getting better as well. And so you have to be responsive to what's happening on the ground locally, as well as communicate a positive vision for how you're going to help make Albany function better. So it's both. So Martin Goldman was first, Goldman was elected in 2002. As you mentioned, several times he's run totally unopposed for re-election. He's been challenged a few times. The person who was most successful as challenger was you in 2012, when you got 43 percent of the vote, uh, which compared to other people is a, a measure of success. What is different this time? You're going back to voters. Are you different? Is Marty different? Is the district different? Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. I'm certainly a different candidate and a different person. You know, I think everyone goes through personal evolutions and development as they mature and they, they age. I have more experience under my belt. I've been able to be exposed to more ideas and more issues and have a chance to work on more issues in my community. Uh, I think the district has changed dramatically as well. This is an incredibly diverse district. Nearly 25% of the population of the district is of Asian background, almost 19% Russian, almost 15% Arabic. Uh, that's an incredibly diverse district, and I don't think that the current representation reflects that. Uh, and I think that over the time, Marty Goldman's record up in Albany has been shown consistently to be one that has let us down. I think he's done a number of things, or not done a number of things, that have really had serious consequences on the daily lives of people in Southern Brooklyn. And my job as a candidate is to communicate where I think he's let us down and talk about how I can do better and how I will do better. So give us a couple examples. Where is Mar Martin Gold let uh, us down? Uh, you know, I, I, there's a couple of great examples. I think some of the most obvious ones, let's talk about mass transportation, mass transit. Uh, you know, I'll give you two examples specifically. Number one, over the last six years, Marty Golden has voted to divert nearly $500 million from the MTA's operating budget into other uses and other, um, other expenses. We have a system that's crumbling uh, in Southern Brooklyn specifically. Just in December, the wall of the 86th Street R station collapsed, literally collapsed. Uh, the stations are literally falling apart. $500 million can pay for a lot of station inspections. It can pay for a lot of rush hour service, uh, either in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. It can pay for weekend service. It can pay for extra bus lines. Pay for a lot of things. You ask anyone in Bay Ridge or Bensonhurst what it's like waiting on the 59th Street platform, waiting for an R train or an N train at rush hour, it's not uncommon to wait 20 minutes, 30 minutes sometimes. That's unacceptable. Um, or the fact that we don't have a single handicapped accessible station in our district. Marty Golden's been the state senator there, sits on the MTA Capital Review Board, and we've been promised an elevator for 15, 16 years. We still have nothing. Um, so that's one of the most glaring examples. Then another example that I talk a lot about with people and that people bring up to me is high property taxes. Residents in Bay Ridge and Diker Heights especially pay extraordinarily high property taxes relative to other people across the borough. Just three years ago, Marty Golden sponsored a bill, was the lead sponsor of a bill, in fact, to give a 95% real estate tax abatement to the owner of a luxury condo building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where the top penthouse sold for $115 million. Who can afford to live in a place like that? Certainly no one uh, down in my neighborhood, certainly no one in my district or in Marty Golden's district. And when he was asked about it, he said he was proud to do it and he would do it again. I think he's out of touch. And I think that has serious consequences for people in our neighborhood. So speaking of being proud of something and, and doing it again in, in your uh, extensive resume is some time working for Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey uh, down in D.C. Uh, Senator Menendez obviously was tried on corruption charges. He was uh, acquitted. Mm -hmm. um, if people look at that and say, yeah, the association with someone who's been indicted on corruption, that's not what I want. What's your answer to that? Uh, I mean, we have a legal system in this country that says you're innocent until proven guilty. And the verdict is clear on Senator Menendez. He's not guilty of any of the charges that were brought against him. He was found to be innocent. Uh, 
and I, I think that my service down for Senator Menendez, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I did a lot of great work working for the senator. As someone who is Greek-American and who takes pride in caring about Greek-American issues, Senator Menendez has long been a champion for the Greek-American community, and for me to have a chance to work on some of those issues was immensely proud and uh, um, personal to me. Uh, and on top of that, I had a chance to work on other things like child support enforcement. I wrote legislation to strengthen interstate child support enforcement. I co-led an investigation into the release of the Lockerbie bomber by Scotland through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This is work that I'm proud of regardless of who uh, I was working for. I think it's really important stuff. And I have no qualms of hiding behind that. At some point, a voter might come to you and say, Andrew, you seem like a swell guy, but there's just too much drama about the Democrats in Albany. You have that conference split between the IDC uh -huh. and the regular Dems. You have Cynthia Felder, who is a Democrat, but caucuses Republicans. Um, it's a mess to maintain the juice our district has. We're going to stick with Senator Gold and the Republicans. What do you say about the chaos the Democrats have uh, been involved in in Albany? Well, first I would say, what juice? I mean, like I just said a few minutes ago, we're, we're still waiting for an elevator. Marty Goldman's been in Albany for 16 years. We've been waiting for an elevator for 16 years. So I don't see where he's delivered for this district. I don't see how the status quo is going to help our neighborhood in any way. Uh, and I think if you look at what's happening in Albany now, what's happened in Albany for the past couple of years, uh, and for the, a long time, frankly, um, it's always been a, a problem that is a place that's full of dysfunction and corruption and just it's comical sometimes how the politics happens up there. I think we can do, certainly do a lot better than the status quo, uh, and that's you, why I'm running. Would you consider uh, joining the IDC if it still exists? No, I'm a Democrat, and I'm running to be a Democrat and caucus with the Democrats. Do you think IDC members like Jesse Hamilton from Brooklyn have been effective for their communities? You'd have to ask Jesse's constituents. I think every I think every neighborhood's different, every district is different, and you have to ask constituents in his district how they view him and how they feel about his service. Hamilton is, was the hand-picked uh, successor of, of your boss, uh, Eric Adams. Mm -hmm. Does uh, the borough president believe he's doing a good job? You'd have to ask the borough president about that. I can't speak to. We're so, close, but I don't, you know, I don't speak for him. He doesn't speak for me. So as I mentioned in the, in the opening, uh, one of the big pieces of political news this week is Andrew Cuomo being challenged. Uh, what do you think about that? What do you think about Cynthia Nixon's argument against Governor Cuomo. Is there any merit to it? Uh, you know, I think that, I mean, I, I'm curious to see what more Cynthia has to offer in terms of her campaign platform. Uh, clearly, anyone can make a case, and people have been making a case against the governor. I think there are certainly things she can be blamed for, some of the things that maybe aren't his responsibility uh, or not take the blame for. I'm curious to hear more from Cynthia as to what her case will be. All I saw was the video she put out. Videos are nice, but I want to hear substance, I want to hear policy, and I want to hear how we're going to make a difference. And that's the same reason why I'm running as well. At this point, I know it's early, but would you say either of them has your vote? Uh, it's too early for me to tell at this point. Uh, I think the governor has delivered on a number of progressive priorities that he campaigned on since he first uh, ran for governor six, uh, eight years ago now. Uh, but I think he's fallen short in a couple other areas, and I'm going to weigh both of those considerations carefully as I make my decision about who I'm going to support and who I'm going to vote for ultimately. So politics is about ideals. It's about uh, people. Uh, it's about duty. It's also about money. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Golden has about $500,000 or so to spend. You have about a fifth of that. To run a credible race, you'll probably have to raise a substantial amount of money. What will that mean to the kind of promises you have to make, to how much of that of your time it takes? What effect is that going to have upon your candidacy? Uh, you know, unfortunately, we live in a system where uh, the, inc the incumbent who has the most money wins a majority of the time, and that should not be how our democracy functions. Uh, as a candidate, my goal is to go out there and meet as many people as possible and not have to worry about the money as much as possible. We don't have a system in New York State. In fact, it's one of the worst states in the entire country for campaign finance laws. The only state worse than us is the state of Virginia, which has no limits whatsoever uh, for campaign contributions. In the state of New York, if you want to donate to my election and my campaign as an individual, you can give me 11000 
$5,000 for my general election, $7,000 for my primary. That's $18,000 per person. That's asinine. That's ridiculous. If you're a couple, husband and wife team, that's $36,000 right there. No one should have that kind of influence or power over our politics. So money is important, but I think voting is more important, and talking to voters is the way you win elections. So my goal is to get out there and knock on as many doors as possible, talk to as many voters as possible, and win this election vote by vote. So as we come toward the end of our time, let's pretend it's the end of one of those debates where they ask the lightning round questions. Sure. Uh, big issue of the day. Are police officers in front of schools to protect kids? Do you support it? I don't know if that's going to be a, the solution that we're looking for. I think that's a solution in search of a problem. I think we have a gun problem in this country. I think we need to tackle that problem first and foremost before we start adding extra costs to our overly overburdened, already overburdened uh, police force. Early voting? Absolutely. Non-citizen voting? Open to the idea, especially at the municipal level, but I want to study it some more. And for those who will be voting uh, this fall, remind us of the dates that are important for both primary and general. Primary election is on September 13th, 2018, and the general election is on November 6th, 2018. Well, Andrew Gennardis, Democrat running for the 22nd State Senate right. District in Brooklyn, thanks so much for coming Thank on. you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. So thanks for coming in today for doing that and for doing that interview. Um, it was, it's interesting, you know, we've been trying to talk on this show a lot about politics in Albany. I think I, until doing the show, didn't really appreciate the importance of what goes on in Albany and how it impacts what happens here. It seems like there are so many things that they control, the purse strings, um, totally. to what gets done here, things you might not appreciate, like the MTA. Right. And that's one of the insidious things about what's happened in Albany, right, is that the corruption and the apparent lack of ability to do anything constructive makes people stop paying attention. And of course, they should keep paying attention because they remain important. Just because right. you don't use the power doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. But certainly purse strings and other stuff too. I mean, changes to the rent stabilization right. system to prevent more units from dropping out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, any number of, you know, basically anything the state wants to do legislatively that has been a substantial barrier. The big progress the city has made over the past several years has been done in spite of the state senate. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that UPK took effect was largely because of some UPK. Uh, universal pre-kindergarten, right. the mayor's signature policy mm -hmm. program. That was largely kind of a, what was miraculous about that was that that cleared the state senate. You mm -hmm. know, um, so one might imagine if that obstacle were were changed, if uh, right. there are more enlightened voices there, there could be a very different setup. Well, that's what people are saying when they say, well, a lot of the progressive legislation that we would like to pass as a city or we would like to pass as a state is being impeded by the Republican-dominated uh, legislature Senate, which is then facilitated by the IDC and Sipka Felder, mm -hmm. um, who seem to be more impeding the path to progress than, say, maybe Martin Golden, although if the Democrats could flip that seat, then... Well, that's it. I mean, it all becomes kind of chicken and egg. And another factor, another name to mention is Andrew Cuomo. I mm -hmm. mean, people have long suspected that he much prefers dealing with a Republican Senate than a liberal Democratic Senate because it allows him to use that as a stopper to the progressives within his own party. Mm -hmm. um, so there, it's a real, it's a mix of personalities and, and agendas up there. Well, we just did a headline yesterday where we talked about Simcha Felder and about his proposal to put armed cops in front of every school in New York City. And he kind of connected it, and he, you know, I think people were trying to, and maybe he stated it openly or, or alluded to it, that he would then begin to caucus with the Democrats if they would back 
passage of this bill, or if Cuomo would do it and Cuomo would push it through. He said, I will do, I'll do you know, acrobatics for Cuomo, basically, if he gets behind this and helps push it through. And so what does that mean, those acrobatics for Cuomo? Does that mean then he will caucus with the Democrats? But is that something that Cuomo would want? That's a very good question, and I think this is why, you know, unless this election really profoundly shifts the balance of power, you know, it's a 31-31 split more or less now, whenever one or two people have the ability to shift power in that body, it's going to put a lot of power in the hands of people who are willing to break away and kind of hold policies hostage to that. Um, that didn't used to happen until the coup in 2008 and then the IDC. Now there's a culture where folks kind of realize, like, hey, if I decide that I'm the, the switch vote, the swing vote, I'm kind of in the catbird seat. Mm -hmm. And so there are special elections coming up on April 24th, right? And a couple uh, seats are in play. I guess there's one in the Bronx and there's one in Westchester, right? That's right. There's a very important one in Westchester that could help decide control of the Senate, yes. Mm -hmm. And the IDC, have they not said that if Democrats win both those races, they will consider realigning with the Democrats? They have said that. Obviously, there's a big if there, and previous deals to realign have fallen mm -hmm. apart. Right. Also, once they do realign, will become the, the, the big uh, controversy will be who's going to be the leader of the Democrats. Will it right. be Jeff Klein? Will it be Andrea Stewart-Cousins? Will it be a co-leadership between the two of them? Jeff are, Klein, who's the head who's of the, the IDC. Who's the head of the IDC and the right. founder of it. So there are, I would say it's fair to say there are ample opportunities for that deal to fall apart, but it is in the offing. Mm -hmm. And we, we've, you know, I've become fixated on the IDC here, and, and we have, and people have been talking about it a lot, and sort of these, um, you know, uh, there are organizations that have come out, nonprofits that are trying to raise awareness about it. Um, Working Families Party is trying to um, pit candidates against IDC members to unseat them in the upcoming elections. Um, is it, it seems to be getting a lot of attention, maybe outsized attention. Do you think that attention is warranted? I mean, are they really uh, the impediment to progressive policies. They have been the impediment to some. Again, I think Andrew Cuomo probably would have been an obstacle to others. Mm -hmm. um, but what does interest me about what you've talked about this process is it's become really, really personal. Um, there's a lot of acrimony, a lot of enmity built in there. And that's the kind Politics of stuff becoming that, personal? can you Come imagine? On, yeah. um, but people really expressing profound personal dislike for one another. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that is kind of hard to roll back right. once you all kind of become one happy family again. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I mean, Jesse Hamilton, we talked about him. We asked Eric Adams on this show about Jesse Hamilton, that people had been criticizing him um, because of his membership in the IDC. Eric Adams' hand-chosen um, replacement, basically, for his Senate seat, his state Senate seat. And now here we have Eric Adams' um, counsel, who, you know, is playing, I'm not going to be with the IDC, I'm not going to be affiliated, I'm running as a Democrat, I'm going to stay a Democrat, but having nothing to say necessarily bad about the IDC or the IDC members. Well, that's true. I mean, it just it becomes a very difficult talking point for new candidates to, to navigate um, because there's a lot of power on all sides, and yeah. there's personal connections, and there's there's money, and there's the possibility that Jeff Klein is a pariah in some of these circles yeah. now. He might be their co-leader come a few months from now. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a delicate uh, tightrope for a young candidate like Andrew Kennardis to, to walk. Right. And so as we drill down in these stories a little bit deeper, who's next and what, what's the next kind of thing to look at or that you want to look at when you come back on the show? Well, I think his opponent, Ross Barkin, who is a former colleague of mine, a former journalist, uh, has written for City Limits, I'll disclose, has interviewed me for CJR. Uh, it's always interesting to see someone coming from, I guess, from covering 
covering politics to actually being in it, some ethical questions around that, some practical questions. And then Golden himself. I mean, it is interesting. He is one of the few Republicans from downstate. Uh, I think there's only two or maybe three from the city. He's the only one from Brooklyn. Uh, former cop, uh, colorful character. I think he'd be great to have on the show. This is a really interesting race, because all of Brooklyn is obviously fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but this particular neighborhood, Bay Ridge, all the changes going on there, uh, southern Brooklyn, it's a neighborhood that is more than two to one Democratic, but somehow Marty Golden has been the Republican stalwart there. Why that is is one of the mysteries that I suppose together Barkin, Gunnardis, and Golden will help us answer. I mean, do you think the Democrats have a chance this cycle? I think they do, just because the city is trending more Democratic, and Gennardis is a known quantity, and Barkin is an aggressive guy. Um, I do believe that the atmosphere created by the Cuomo, uh, Nixon, and whoever is on the Republican side race might have a lot to do with how in much interest there is, and turnout will play some role in deciding who wins this race. Cool. Well, we'll look forward to having you back in a couple weeks. I'll be here. All right. Thanks, Jared. Thanks. Rick's social justice media team, Be Heard, puts on a town hall meeting in our ballroom four times a year. The first one in 2018 takes place Wednesday night at 6.30. It's called Me Too is Just the Beginning. Here to tell us about it is our Brick TV editorial director, also my colleague and friend, and someone we're going to get to host this show one of these days. Megan Donis, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for being here. And I really do want to host okay, someday. We're going to have you on When soon. I'm not... So busy. So busy. And I know producing. you're super busy yeah. with this town hall, so thanks for taking the time out. Of course. Um, so tell me about this town hall. Me Too is just the beginning. Yes. So um, as you said before, at Be Heard, we choose four social justice topics a year, and we build a documentary series that culminates in this live televised multimedia event. And um, obviously, um, the Me Too movement um, has has you know, really, really garnered a lot, a lot of movement um, this year coming out of what started with the, you know, the Hollywood media elite and Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. um, but as we were looking at it and as, as we were looking at how we could cover this topic um, long term, we wanted to explore some of the angles that haven't really been covered a lot, which is what we always try and do with Be Heard. So with the Me Too movement, we really wanted to look beyond the media, Mm -hmm. and um, and Hollywood and actually look at how sexism and sexual harassment and sexual assault plays mm -hmm. out among women in very um, different classes and races in mm -hmm. everything from domestic work to labor um, mm -hmm. really looking at really looking at this from from a perspective um, that shows that it's a, that, that really looks at Women who don't aren't of privilege necessarily, right. you know, and not to in, in no who don't have the platforms necessarily. And you know, one thing that we're very aware of is we don't there's there's no misery competition here. That is mm. not how um, no one's experience of this is worse um, or easier or better depending mm. on their privilege or place in society. But sure. again, at Be Heard, we really do try and look at in the media conversation around a topic, whether it be mental health or mm. race and mass incarceration or Me Too, right. what can we what can we talk about that maybe isn't being talked about? Right. So meaning just the beginning of the conversation, right? And just kind well, of extending it to these other groups that are maybe less represented so far in, in, the, in the dialogue. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we actually consulted with Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. um, originally, before Harvey Weinstein, Me Too was, um, mm -hmm. was actually a movement right. based around women, the women that we're talking about, around mm -hmm. women in, um, mm -hmm. uh, in underrepresented mm -hmm. 
classes of work, right? Sure. And then it um, it took force mm -hmm. with with Hollywood. So we actually consulted with Tarana Burke at the beginning of this, mm -hmm. um, and we're very conscious of the name too. But sure. but our but the reason it's called Me Too is just the beginning is because it is she founded such an incredible movement. It has gotten so much media attention, and things are actually happening right mm -hmm. now. And so what we want to focus on is is what's next. You know, right. how do we move? Um, how do we move the move the conversation forward, the sharing of stories forward into real actions? Mm. And actually, the it was going to be Me Too, um, Now What? But then PBS stole that from me oh. um, within <laughs> two days, and we had to come up with a new title. Well, you yeah. came up with a good title, I think. And so real quick, because we're running out of time, yeah. who's going to be on the panel? I mean, yes. what are some of the highlights? And yes. Things you're looking forward to? Um, so Carmelyn Malalis is the New York City Commissioner on Human Rights. Mm. Um, she is this amazing force of a woman and you know her some of the stuff that she's done around sexual harassment laws um, mm -hmm. which are actually somewhat progressive in New York City um, she is traveling around federally right now um, California all sorts of states are looking to New York and some of the work that she's doing in her office mm -hmm. to um, to update their mm -hmm. sexual harassment and assault laws around human rights so mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to her she okay. is going to be amazing names. yes um, Juan Ramos is also an amazing activist with an organization called A Call to Men, and his he works in Latino communities, and we, we really, this is not just a conversation for women. In fact, it's vital that men and women and sure. people of all sexual orientations and, and race and ethnicity be in on this conversation, otherwise we're not gonna move beyond an echo chamber. So um, Juan Ramos works with an organization that actually trains boys to become better men. Mm -hmm. He works directly with um, sexual abusers and domestic abusers to try and shift their perceptions of um, mm -hmm. of women okay. and and these types of interactions. So, okay. um, cool. yeah, we're coming at it from. We have an amazing immigrants rights feminist lawyer. We have a philosopher. Hmm. We have the commissioner of the Human Rights Commission of the City of New York. We cool. have um, yeah. We we come at these topics from um, many different vantage points but all working towards the same goal. Well, great, so just um, in the final moments we have, uh, if people wanna tune in, or I don't know, can people still come and see yes, it live? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, there is talk of snow tomorrow. Sure. Um, we are going forward. Snow or, shine. Um, snow or shine. We will have tea and hot chocolate and, um, and you know, there's always public transportation, and you can walk here in your snow boots. And there's um, there's going to be a there's a bar next door afterwards that's offering drink specials. So um, it's it, they're always really empowering um, yeah. conversations, and it's worth really trying to make it out. Yeah, no, they're great and special events. I can yeah. attest, and so I hope people do yeah. come out, and I hope it's well attended. And I hope yeah. it's a great. I'm sure it will be yeah. a great uh, great event. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, of and course. good luck getting it done and all the final arrangements. Thank you. Jonathan Leaf, executive producer, I can't believe you're having me read this intro, but here goes. Grandmother, what big pots and saucepans you have. It's what the big bad wolf might say if he showed up on the web series Cooking with Granny, but if he knew what he was doing, he'd be less interested in eating the guest star than in learning how she does what she does in the kitchen. The series is created, produced, and hosted by Caroline Shin, who, full disclosure, used to produce videos for Brick TV. And she's here to tell us all about it.
Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you. It's really nice being here. I'm glad to have you. So I think it's really cool that um, we're doing this segment on um, in the month of National Women's History Month, since it really talks about family folklore, and that's been passed down generationally, mostly through women. Um, can you tell me about that tradition that exists? Sure. Um, well, so cooking, I would say, universally has always been a gendered role, a gendered domesticated role, mm -hmm. so it was always passed down through women. So once a female got married, it was, it, it was her responsibility to learn to cook for the rest of the family, and because of that, she became kind of the star of the kitchen, that unsung heroine of the kitchen, I would say. Um, and so recipes would pass down from one mother to the next to the next, and then you know you have a grandmother, a great grandmother, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, so there's this really, you know, this rich, delicious cultural heritage that is passed down from one generation to the next. So you're celebrating these unsung heroes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that right now it's kind of the era of celebrity chefs, but for me, um, whether it's my grandmother or my mom or even my friends' moms and grandmas, they have always been the true stars of the kitchen for me. Well, speaking of celebrity chefs, some people have called you the Anthony Bourdain of grandmother's kitchens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Have you, you've heard that, yes. maybe? How, yeah. Well, so tell me, how did you come up with the idea for this series? Um, well, actually, it all started um, helping my grandmother cook um, in our small kitchen in Flushing, Queens. Um, so there have been a lot of influences. My grandmother, um, as she would cook, and we would make these really amazing traditional Korean dishes, whether it's Korean barbecue or the spicy blue crab dish or kimchi, which is very popular nowadays, um, I would help her cook, and she would tell me these really, really kind of heart-wrenching stories. Um, she is actually a refugee from North Korea, so from North Korea to South Korea, and then during the, um, during the Korean War, um, you know, the family suffered even more tragedy, and then eventually my grandmother came, um, became um, an immigrant in the United States. So she told me these stories, and it was really when I was talking to her that world history came alive to me, um, and my family legacy really came came alive, and I kind of understood what that really meant, and I wanted to preserve those really special moments of. Um, of learning and cooking with my grandmother. And um, as I said, I grew up in Flesh and Queens, mm -hmm. so diversity was my default. Like, I didn't know anything else but diversity. I had friends from all different cultures, and I was really lucky enough to go to their homes and have this fresh ricotta salada pasta, mm -hmm. you know, with um, just fried zucchini blossoms, which wow. I didn't even know was food. I was like, wait a second, you can eat these flowers? And it was mm -hmm. delicious. Um, I would go to my Indian friend's house in Belarus, and and her mom would have just made puri, which is this like fried dough. And this was before the series, or this is in the context of the series? This is in the context of the series, but this was this was before the series, but this is how kind of the foundation of the idea, kind of, the seed right. for the show started, I mean, years ago when I was a kid experiencing all of this mm. with my grandmother and within this multicultural landscape of New York City. Well, it makes sense that these conversations would be happening in the kitchen because it seems like anytime you go to a party, everybody's always in the kitchen talking so that you're talking about culture and history and, and food in the kitchen, seems to be. Everyone wants to be around yeah. food. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. we yeah. all love to eat, so. Uh, well, so tell me, are all your grannies in the show from Brooklyn? 
Um, no, they're from all over. Um, actually, it started off as immigrant grandmothers from New York City. Um, so we have this one sassy, hilarious uh, Trinidadian grandmother from East Flatbush, mm -hmm. and she takes us on a grocery trip. Um, she gives us a little tour of what ingredients she gets. Is she the one um, who, with the hot pepper sauce? Yes, that I hot that. sauce. I saw that That clip. hot sauce is fire. She was the one who told you not to put it on your hands and then touch yourself in private places? Yeah, don't wash. <laughs> she says, don't wash your vagina after you <laughs> make the hot sauce. <laughs> good advice. Yes, good um, advice. And then, yeah, so we've had grandmothers from um, the different boroughs of New York City. And then I recently finished a um, holiday season um, with this nonprofit um, called I'm an Immigrant. And they actually sent me around the country. So I was able to um, interview with and get this and cook with a um, Congolese refugee grandma um, whose family was finally able to reunify um, in Fargo, North Dakota, wow. of all places. Wow. In Fargo, yeah. Amazing. It was a Congolese corner mm -hmm. of Fargo, North Dakota. Wow. So wow. that was pretty. Well, so tell me, in the 45 seconds we have left, two, yeah. two quick questions. If there's a Brooklynite grandma out there and somebody meets her or she herself wants to be on the show, what can she do um, to get in touch with you to see about getting on the show? And number two, where can people watch it? Sure. So I'm always looking for people to nominate, nominate their granny. So nominate your granny. Um, the the um, the easiest way is on Instagram. So cooking with Granny on Instagram is at cooking w Granny. Just okay. message me. A lot of people do. They tell me about their grandma. They tell me about their dishes. Okay. Um, so that's really the best way to nominate your grandma and get mm -hmm. her on the show. And you can watch the show on cookingwithgranny.tv or on um, our YouTube, which is Cooking with Granny. Okay, I recommend it. It's a great show, and we're so happy to have you here to share it with us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, just a reminder, we will not be seen tomorrow because of our town hall meeting on Me Too. And Thursday's show, we're going to do a special episode looking at women and activism. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>